Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. Also, from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and the CNPS is working to save the communities of plants and related beings and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Fall and early winter are the perfect time in much of the northern hemisphere to plant bulbs, woody shrubs and trees, herbaceous perennials and perennial vines in the landscape. It is also a good time to seed spring-blooming, especially native, annual wildflowers. So I also thought it was just the right time of year to chat a little with Heather McCargo of the Wild Seed Project in Portland, Maine. Focused on the relationship between seed-grown native plants and reweaving healthy ecosystems in our world, Heather not only founded the Wild Seed Project, but served as the organization's executive director from 2014 to 2021 and is currently the seed program manager for the project. Thank you so much for joining me today, Heather. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. If I were to ask you at this point in your life and your career and your gardening um, education, which I think is ongoing in all of us all the time, if you had a mission statement for your gardening practice, what would that be? It is to return native plants to the space right outside my door. Um, just working on bringing the native plants back into the landscape. I also, however, am a passionate vegetable gardener and herb gardener, so I've got a lot of experience with the more cultivated, useful plants for people. So I, I always have in my yard, everything either has to be indigenous, you know, the regent wild plants to support the nature, and then any other plants, they're not planted for how they look. They're planted because I can eat them or make tea or some other medicine out of them. There's a lot to, to, to get into there, but first I would like to go back a little bit and have you describe for listeners where you were born and raised and who were the people, places, and plants that grew you into a woman for whom reestablishing the native plants of your area and doing so by seed would become an important value and act, Heather? Thank you. I love this question. Well, I was born outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, about 15 miles outside of the city. I grew up in an old farm. My father was a businessman and my mother was, I was born in 1960. My mother was an organic gardener and an artist and kind of a bit radical, especially compared to her husband. And she was very fond of Yule Gibbons, the yeah. Canadian man who wrote the book, Stocking the Wild yeah. Asparagus. So I grew up, so I grew up at a time when nobody else in, you know, our sort of town 
you know, I grew up with a mother who foraged and had an organic garden and eating healthy food. And she, you know, we went to school with whole wheat bread when nobody else did. Um, and then the, the landscape in Western Pennsylvania, you know, it, the Southern part of Pennsylvania is below where the glaciers reach to. So it has the deeper soils and the, just, it's really the beginning of the great Eastern deciduous forest where just huge canopy trees, lots of different species, you know, oak, maple, hickory, Buckeye, and then the understory was filled with all the great woodland wildflowers. And I was a, you know, child of the woods. We were outdoors playing all day, every day. I had three, you know, there were four children. Um, we had a barn where we would play if it was rainy, but I was basically outdoors all the time. And really remember just the powerful feeling that those massive trees gave and the, all the different plants on the forest floor. We made a lot of forts in the woods and tunnels through the hedgerow. So I was just outside all the time and encouraged to do that by my mom. And then I would help her in the garden. I think I was the child who was most taken to helping her in the garden. Then when I went off to college, I went to Hampshire College in Western Massachusetts. And I right away fell in with the, you know, the science plant ecology geology department and had just lots of wonderful teachers. But one who really stood out was a wildlife biologist named Ray Coppinger. And he became my lifelong mentor. And his specialty was canines, both wolves and the domesticated dogs. And a lot of his research was around sheep guarding dogs. And um, he brought a lot of the guard dogs from around the world, collected them and brought them to the US to help farmers, you know, tolerate coyotes and wolves. And he, I, what, he was just one of those dynamic teachers and incredible speaker prolific writer and really passionate about all his students and really worked with you and pushed you. And he, he, he stayed, I stayed in touch with him his whole life. And what was really unusual about him being a wildlife biologist was because he also worked with dogs, it was this kind of back and forth between the effects of domestication and wildness. And that has really been a theme for me my whole life, you know, both um, with the plants too. Um, and because I think a lot of gardeners don't really understand what's different about wild plants. But with him, and he knew the plants too, that was what was amazing about him. You know, the great biologists, they were back then they knew everything. It wasn't just their area. So he really helped me learn to read the landscape. One of the greatest classes he taught was one called the Echogeology of the Connecticut River Valley. And it was him and the geology professor. And we were just outside every day for class looking at the forest in different locations throughout the Pioneer Valley. 
and trying to understand what had happened in this land in the past that made it look like it did today. The other thing that I had great opportunities with in college was with different internships. So I was one of the first probably permaculture interns in probably 81. I was at the New Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod, which um, doesn't exist anymore, but it was founded by two marine biologists from California who had then been at Woods Hole and were studying the effects of fish pheromone and chemicals on fish pheromones and how that was messing them up. And they said, we need to do something to help people live more sustainably on earth. And so the New Alchemy Institute had brought Bill Mollison, who was the Australian man who sort of founded the permaculture movement over. And that's what I worked on while I was there. And then Hampshire also had the New England Farm Center, which Ray Coppinger was one of the directors of and one of the scientists from outside Hampshire who helped there was John Torrey, who was at the time the director of the Harvard Forest. And I worked with him on his experiments with alder trees and they fix nitrogen. They're not a legume, but they fix nitrogen. And then after college, by this point, just obsessed with plants. It was probably John Torrey from the Harvard Forest said, oh, you should go see if you can work with Jack Alexander at the Arnold Arboretum. So he was the propagator there. And so I just graduated and I worked at a restaurant and volunteered two days a week in with him. And the Arnold Arboretum is all about woody plants from around the world. So that's where I really got my beginning with growing lots of unusual species from seed. While I was doing that, you know, I was thinking about graduate school. And again, my favorite professor, Ray, was the science advisor for a, a sort of radical graduate program called the Conway School of Landscape Design, also out in Western Mass. And so I ended up going there for a year. And when I graduated from there, I'd always had this obsession that I wanted to go out west to California. And Ray encouraged me, he said, I think it would be great for you to leave the landscape you know and go somewhere completely different where you have to learn all the plants and animals. So I moved to the Bay Area and this was now 80, 84. And I worked in a couple different offices and the one that I finished up in was um, a man by the name of Jonathan Plant. And he had been the curator of the native plant garden at the Berkeley Botanical Garden. He'd also done the graduate program at Kew Gardens in England. All his designs included a lot of native plants. And of course, when I was out there, I became involved with the California Native Plant Society. And there's a one there botanical garden up at Tilden Park in Berkeley, which is all the, you know, has all the kind of major habitats in California had a big effect on me. And it was really after working for him that I got interested in public horticulture as opposed to being doing private design. First of all, I just want to point out what an incredible cohort of plants people informed your, uh, your educational and your career beginnings. You said something 
when you were working at the Arnold Arboretum, you became interested in growing things from seed. I would love to have you describe that a little bit more with like what, you know, why did that capture your imagination in such a specific way um, at that moment in your life, do you think? Well, like I said, I had planted plenty of seeds in a vegetable garden and then when I had worked with John Torrey with the alder research, we were using alder seedlings. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I had a good enough education that I knew plants come from, you know, reproduced by seed. And I found the woody plants, the trees, particularly, you know, powerful and interesting to think about. And in fact, when I was went to visit, you know, I had to go convince Jack Alexander to let me apprentice to him. And I remember the first day him showing me around and showing, you know, here they're, they're trying to get seeds to germinate from plants from all, hardy plant trees from all over the world. And some of them had never been, you know, there was no information on and he'd go through, sometimes we have to file through the seed code or pour yeah. boiling water over them or put them in 80 degree temperature versus 70 degree temperature or, or in and out in the re refrigerator. And then he said, but you know what works the best was when you just throw the seeds outside. And he's like, I always take some of the seeds and just throw them outside under a bush. And those ones always eventually germinate, <laughs> maybe not right away, but nature knows best. So, um, and then once you start doing it, it's, it's magical. You know, and growing from seed, it's really, you're more of a, a midwife. Yep. You know, the seed is evolved, is designed to germinate and grow when the conditions are right, when it's, you know, and so it's really you thinking like that plant, understanding where that plant comes from and trying to mimic that and seeing all the different, you know, you know, there are a lot of harsh chemicals now used in yeah. traditional horticulture and just comparing that with just sowing the seeds outside, which I'll talk about a little bit more right. when we get to Wild Seed Project. I just, um, I guess that, that must be where it began. Um, okay, so you're in the Bay Area. What next? Late in 89, we moved back to New England and then in, and so I'd been working with Jonathan Plant, so I was really interested in public horticulture. And I got a job at the Garden in the Woods. Um, as first, the first year, I was the assistant propagator, and then I became the head propagator, and I was there from 90 to 95. And so I know you've interviewed Uli and probably some other people from Garden in the Woods, but it was a magical place to be, like the ultimate botanical garden because it's all the region's wild plants sort of planted naturalistically and my job as propagator was heavenly you know I'm under the shade of the woodlands there propagating just you know a wide variety hundreds of different species both for sale and just to experiment with I had an incredible team of volunteers who assisted me every week who were very experienced propagators in themselves several of them were former British people and I learned a ton from them because they grew everything every plant every tree every shrub every 
perennial in their yard they had grown from seed wow. themselves. And I found that so different from the American mentality, which is that you always have to go buy a plant, yeah. not thinking of the seeds. The, and the British have a different way about that. And then I also had a lot of freedom at Garden of the Woods. You know, I got, that was where I got my first experience public speaking, which I was very motivated to do because of my beloved professor, Ray Coppinger, who just was a dynamic speaker. And I taught on different aspects of ecological design, propagation, obviously. And then I also had this passion for the edible and medicinal plants that stem back from my mom. And I was growing all these native ethnobotanical plants, the medicinal, edible, and fiber plants that the Native Americans had known and used, knew, know and use so well. And so I really got to do a lot of wonderful growing and learning and seeding when I was there. This is Cultivating Place. Heather McCargo is the founder of the Wild Seed Project in Portland, Maine, focused on the relationship between seed-grown native plants and reweaving healthy ecosystems in our world for all living creatures. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more with Heather. Cultivating Place is made possible through proud support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to turn 100 years old and still growing strong, the AHS is committed to integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and the joy that reminds us all of the vibrancy and relevance of gardening in our world. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual memberships to the AHS. For the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. Cultivating Place is also made possible in part through support from the California Native Plant Society on a mission to save California's native plants and places using both head and heart. Speaking of heart and the upcoming holidays, the California Native Plant Society's festive winter games, Wreath Masters, is back for season two. This friendly competition invites California plant lovers to craft wreaths or wreath-like creations using at least 51% California native plant material from your garden or another cultivated source. No wild forged material, please. When you're ready, submit photos of your creations into one of the six categories of the competition by December 5th. Celebrating the seasonal beauty of California's native plants in our daily lives together, over 150 wreaths were submitted to the 2020 Wreath Master Fund. This year, CNPS will host public workshops, virtual demonstrations, and more to help competitors complete their wreaths. Bring home the beauty of native plants and join in the Wreath Masters Fun. As a judge, I want to see your submissions there. While everyone can enjoy being inspired by the submissions, only California residents are eligible to submit. 
For all the details, head over to www.cnps.org forward slash wreathmasters. And as a judge, I also can't submit, but you can bet I have already started my own winter plant-loving seasonal creations. I'll share mine on my Instagram stories. Join me and CNPS Wreath Masters updates there. You can find me on Instagram at cultivating underscore place. And as a final side note, for those of you preparing your winter gift lists for others that you love, I would suggest a membership to the California Native Plant Society or the American Horticultural Society as being a perfect offering. We're back now to our conversation with Heather McCargo of the Wild Seed Project based in Portland, Maine. As we come back, Heather shares more about her time in the early 1990s working as propagator at Garden in the Woods, the botanic garden associated with the Native Plant Trust, formerly the New England Wildflower Society. She shares much more about the importance of growing from seed, which she has been learning along her entire career path to now. The real value of growing from seed is seeds are the result of sexual reproduction. When you take a cutting or a division, that's cloning. And there's no genetic diversity in that cloning. And so when you talk about making new plants, when you are taking a division, you are just cloning that plant. So, you know, we need to be propagating lots of plants from seed to keep as much genetic diversity out there in our, you know, when we reintroduce these plants into our landscapes, whether it's in our garden right out our back door, or if you're doing a restoration project in the wild. The other thing I did right away when I took over the nursery at Garden in the Woods was I made it completely organic. No chemical, no chemical fertilizers, which, you know, before that, that we're using Osmocote, which, you know, not only is it a chemical fertilizer, but we now know it's coated in plastic, which is, you know, a new pollutant in the landscape. So I luckily I had, I grew up with a mother as an organic gardener. So I knew what I was doing. And that was an easy switch for me, except that you couldn't get organic potting soil back then. So I had to make my own. And, you know, that was right at the time when, there were in Massachusetts, there were some big commercial composting companies starting up. And one of them, you know, I ended up sourcing where we'd get a tractor trailer load of this, you know, hot compost that had been sifted so that it gone through a screen to a quarter of an inch. So it didn't have big lumps in it. And I would mix that with coarse sand and a little bit of vermiculite and perlite as my basic growing medium. Now you can purchase all kinds of great organic potting soils, but you couldn't back then. You stated very specifically that when you take a division, you are cloning a plant. When you grow from seed, that is the result of sexual reproduction, and that sexual reproduction adds more diversity and mixing of genetic diversity into the landscape. Why is this important, Heather? So there's been a big awareness since the 90s about why chemicals in gardening, you know, like I feel like the organic gardening movement 
really became in the public consciousness in the 90s when Alar, that chemical that was sprayed on yep. apples, when suddenly everyone's like feeding their little kids massive quantities of applesauce and Meryl Streep got behind the campaign. And that's when the general public like got the message, yes, organically grown food is better. Well, the, in the horticultural world, we're really late on getting the organic piece. It's, it's coming now, like lots of people are starting to get that yet, but yet you go to a nursery and you see Osmocote in the pot. But what's completely outside of people's hearing is that most of the you know, modern nursery trade is all cloned plants. And you know, the old fashioned way to clone was you dig, it, dig up and divided a plant or maybe you took a cutting you know, that's not how it's usually done anymore. It's done by a process called tissue culture, you know, in a laboratory where they take some little cells from the growing tip of the plant, culture them out in a Petri dish and can get thousands, you know, of genetically unique individuals that are then grown on and become these garden plants. You know, often they're patented. So, you know, only the person who developed that plant can even propagate them. So when you go to the nursery, most of the plants are cloned now. If so, now that people are interested in growing our native species, if we just reproduce them by cloning, we are not going to help that population stay resilient. So everyone, you know, gardeners, you know, the whole reason heirloom vegetables have caught people's attention is because they are reservoirs of the genetic diversity in our crop plant that was quickly being lost with the with modern agriculture and recognizing that ah we had all these different varieties and now only a few are being grown with wild plants if we start now taking our wild plants and domesticating them and just cloning certain what seem to be superior individuals, and then putting them all out in the landscape, we will be weakening, you know, the genetics of our wild plant population. So, you know, if you come from a family of more than, if, if you have a sibling or several siblings, you can see genetic diversity, same two parents, how different each offspring is. Well, you know, that's true in the plant world too, only even more so because, you know, a tree will have tens of thousands of flowers in it and then it will cross pollinate it with another tree and have, you know, one tree might even have a million seeds in that year. Each one of those seeds is a genetically unique individual. You go buy a clone cultivar of that tree and you only have one individual. And you look in our cities, like here in Portland, one of the only native trees um, that's planted in Portland is red maple, which is a great native tree. But yet most of the ones that have been planted as, as street trees are clones of you know, a handful of different individuals. So we, we just don't wanna go that route. You know, people are, I think people are interested in planting more natives because they wanna support nature. They wanna you know, have more ecological landscape practices. They see the huge, pollution and loss of biodiversity. They want our landscapes to mean something. Well, if we just fill our landscape with clone plants, we're gonna be, that's not gonna help 
the situation. That you know, biodiversity is it has several levels. It's got the ecosystem. There's lots of different ecosystems. It's got um, habitats, and then it's got at the species level. That within each species, you want there to be as much genetic diversity as possible because it's that genetic diversity. Each off each unique seed. Some of those individuals will be fonder of a hotter, drier world. Others right. will be fonder of a hotter, wetter world or more pollution or whatever our future holds. We need that genetic diversity. And now that native people are interested in native plants, I, to me, it's really important that we don't start domesticating them and cloning them, selecting out you know, individuals that we think are better when they're not necessarily better for that species, or they're, it's not necessarily, they are not better for that species. They weaken that species. And I learned this lesson way back with my wildlife professor, Ray Coppinger, because the wolves and the big, you know, the, the American panther and all the wild cats, they had such narrow, small populations that they were all suffering from inbreeding depression. Ah. That's what happens when you don't have enough genetic diversity. Yep. And so the same thing can happen with plants. It is essentially freezing that plant and its adaptive knowledge in time. It, it is not allowing all of our plants to gather information from the space that they're in at the exact time that they're in, and then intermix that with information from the plant they breed with, and then pass both pieces of information on to their children who then adapt differently. Like we halt that passing and adapting of knowledge uh, in, in time because of cloning one specific individual over and over and over again. This is a really important topic in the seed world right now, as well as the native plant world. Letting the plants take their generational work and keep going with it is really important in these times. Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example Back when I was at Garden in the Woods in the 90s, foam flower, Tiarella cordifolia, that if any nursery had it, so it's a wild plant of the deciduous forest. And at that time, there were starting to be some cultivars that were appearing. And now, you know, it's a plant that can have a lot of different leaf shape and, and modeling on the leaves. And um, some will plants will send out more runners than others. It also hybridizes what, you know, there have been a lot of hybrids of it with heucheras, that family of plants, to the point where now you can hardly find a straight species to purchase and plant. And in that, in that 30 years since then, there is less, like all of our native plants, they are all losing their place in our world. All of them are being stressed by us taking up more space or wiping out their habitat. So if we fill our, if we start just planting cultivars of these natives, we won't be helping the wild plant populations. So, okay, you were at Garden in the Woods for five years. Yes, and then in the fall of 95, my husband and I were ready to flee the Boston suburban sprawl, and we moved to down East Maine, right down the road from 
um, the Good Life Center, Helen and Scott Nearing, if you've ever heard of them, or Elliot Coleman and Bar Barbara Damrush. And that's where I raised my two kids. My son was born about a year later. I was an older mother when he was born, was 37. And then a couple years, four years later, we adopted a daughter from China. And so my husband, being a research engineer, travels a lot. And so, and I was pretty happy down on the farm just being with the kids. So I only did a little bit of work for a number of years. And then I helped my kids school get a big grant and sort of started this farm and ecology program and taught that for a couple of years. And by now it is 2011. And my husband and I both have dual US citizenship. And we spent a year in Barcelona and it was 2011-12. And my son had just graduated from eighth grade. My daughter was 10, we lived in an apartment. You know, Barcelona is a huge city. And that's when I got really obsessed with, if most of the world's people live in urban areas, how are we gonna get these city people to connect with nature? And Barcelona, it reminds me of San Francisco in that you've got the hills behind the city, you've got this big city, and then you've got the ocean. Mm -hmm. And in the hills, you've still got the wild vegetation. But like most cities around the world now, all the cultivated plants are the same. You know, you see the same annuals. And, you know, it depends climatically what street trees are planted. But yep. still, it was a shocking, you know, just how probably 50 years ago, if you'd been to Barcelona, there would have been different flowers in people's pots, but not anymore. And so when we returned from there, that's when I, my kids were getting older. I was trying to think what I was ready to do next. And that's when I really got ready to, I, I realized I was going to have to create my own interesting work. And Maine is a state with a lot of natural beauty and a very sophisticated organic farming foodie scene. But the probably because there still seems to be a lot in nature. There was no awareness or very little awareness about native plants and bringing them back into our, you know, human dominated landscapes. And the horticultural world was pretty traditional. And I realized everything that I had been doing, you know, at Garden in the Woods was still needed here in Maine. This is Cultivating Place. Heather McCargo is the founder of the Wild Seed Project. She is focused on the relationship between seed-grown native plants and reweaving healthy ecosystems across our world for all living creatures. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more with Heather. Thinking out loud this week, I am amazed and expanded and schooled in many ways by the knowledge of Heather McCargo in this week's conversation. And her pointing out this relationship that we as biological creatures have to the more wild of our planet mates, the winged, the four-legged, the animal, the vegetable, fungal, mineral, microscopic, 
It is an amazing moment of epiphany when our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hearts can grasp not only that we cannot make our lives without all of who we are, but we are also so much stronger when we ensure the future of all of who we are, the wild and the cultivated, not one at the expense of the other. I know it's a balance, and I know we've gotten it wrong for a really long time, but I also know we can do it better. I love my garden. You all know this. But to see its plants as potentially damaging or diminishing the remaining wild of the world does not sit well with me. Whereas to see the native plants of my region that I invite into my garden as being not just food and shelter and beauty, but also improving the diverse genetic pool for all wild things to keep building and growing from, it places a whole new level of concern, but also agency firmly in my court, in my hands, in my garden, in how and with whom my garden and I grow together. So yes, more native plants, please, and more native seed stewardship and knowledge while we're at it, please, and thank you. We're back now to our conversation with Heather McCargo of the Wild Seed Project, which she founded in 2014 after returning with her family from a year living in Barcelona, Spain, and realizing that she, as a knowledgeable plants person, wanted and needed to do something more about the loss of biodiversity in our world, starting from right where she was. So I gathered a couple, mostly other plant colleagues, people I knew who had some expertise. A couple of them are scientists. Others were very skilled gardeners, good writers, and put together a board of directors. So our mission is to inspire people to take action and join us in increasing the presence of native plants grown from wild seed. You know, and we envision a world where people help repopulate the landscape to be abundant with native plants so we can support you know wildlife biodiversity and buffer the effects of climate change we have stayed true to that mission so there were several things dimensions to our program one was and this was core because of who i am was the seeds and making and making the seeds available well i was incredibly experienced collecting seeds. I knew exactly how to, you know, handle all the different species. So I wanted to have some seeds for sale because you can't tell people to grow from seeds if they can't get the seeds. And learning how to handle the different native seeds is different species to species. So I wanted to have a lot of the species that are easier to propagate. You know, there are some that are really challenging but there's plenty that aren't. And so I wanted to have a wide variety of seeds available so that right away I could get people sowing the seeds. In fact, I had a lot, of, I have a lot of problems still. People say, oh, I'm so happy you're saving the native seeds. I'm like, I'm not trying to get people to save the seeds. I'm trying to get them to sow the seeds. And by sowing the seeds, I don't mean just tossing them out in the landscape. 
That's what everybody wants to do. They want to buy a whole bunch of seeds and just throw it out there. And I'm like, our native seeds are too precious. You know, most of the seeds a plant produces, you know, yes, they get dispersed out in the environment, but most of them, you know, get eaten by a bird or an animal or land somewhere where they'll never germinate and grow. You know, it's like 1% success rate you know, of that year's seeds is massive. But when you sow them and how it's very detailed outlined on our website, I like to get people to sow them in pots. You can make a prepared, you know, like growing area in nursery area, but not directly in your garden. You've got too many weed seeds in there. So sow them in pots. You can get good organic potting soil. Um, again, I had to make it when I was at Garden of the Woods, but now you can go buy a good compost-based potting soil. You sow the seeds, you cover them with sand, and you put them outside. And the best time of year to sow the seeds um, with our northern template plants are in the fall and early yeah, winter. Yeah. Um, because most of the species need a winter yeah. cold period outside. So you can just sow them in the pots and stick them yeah. outside. And that's where gardeners can be, are the hardest to retrain. Because if you are a skilled vegetable gardener or you grow a lot of annuals, most of our vegetables and annuals, these are tropical or Mediterranean plants. They're domesticated, so they've been selected over time for rapid germination, uniform germination. So people think you either need to sow them in side under lights or they need a greenhouse and they need steady temperature. Well, that's like the opposite of what our native seeds need. They need the freeze and thaw to break out, break down the heavy seed coat so that they can then germinate. So then we also wanted to have a lot of information, you know, get the accurate information out there. So we have a very beautiful and informative website. It's like a book. You know, there's just tons of information on the website. And then we also, I'm a voracious reader. And so I really wanted to have a print publication, you know, an annual publication, um, Wild Seed, where every year we had a collection of different writings on the topic, you know, different aspects of you know, native plants, whether it's looking at them in the wild or how to propagate or them in the garden. So we have six volumes of those. We're working on our seventh issue. It's going to be different this year. We're making a guide to native trees. Um, so taking a little different format this year. Um, but I really see the value of printed media. It's a harder sell. It's more expensive to produce. So it's always a struggle to get the, you know, raise the money to, to do it. But we've been very committed to that. And then the last couple years, um, the my board of directors, we've been, you know, like all nonprofits going through all kind of strategic planning. And then we wrote up um, our 10-year 10-year impact plan we want to see in the next decade. That we released literally right as co right at this like today last year right as covid was hitting and um you know this was to help us articulate where we wanted to be in 10 years how we were going to measure success and one of the things that we added to that was this pledge to rewild getting people to commit to saying they're going to try to do this and so doug tallamy who i know you've had on the show and who he's generously written for Wild Seed a bunch of times. I've gotten to overlap with him many times. He's really a wonderful man. I 
I really wanted to push getting people to understand the the number that he has been pushing, which is that if you don't have a minimum of 70% of the biomass of your vegetation in native, there's just not enough of the insects, caterpillars, all the other creatures to make up a food web. And so that's what our pledge to Over Wild is, getting a bunch of people to say, yes, I, I've either already done it, which there are people like me who've been doing this for years, or, I will pledge to work, you know, to start shifting the tipping point in my landscape to having a minimum, and that's a minimum of 70%. And, and so most of your seeds, you, you started the collection by collecting knowledgeably and ethically in the field, in wild populations, and then have, do you have a program wherein you are growing those plants in order to create more seed? So, or do you continually collect from the wild heather? There's a, a lot of movement to only, with the real native plant world, to only have seeds from right in your immediate area. And I worry about that because of the genetic diversity issue in small populations. I would like to look at our seeds a little bit more regionally and wherever possible, have them be, you know, the seeds collected from wild plants as much as possible with genetic diversity. I've worked very hard with a small team of volunteers who help me collect, clean, package all of our seed. You know, this is not, it is not economical to pay staff to run around the landscape collecting seed. There's not enough money in the world to do that. It's to, you know, our seed sale is totally dependent on dedicated volunteers. And in an ideal world, we'd have, each state would have a team of knowledgeable volunteers who knew the ethics and the biology of the seed because, you know, I, it's why I don't, like people ask me all the time, can you tell me how to collect the seeds? And it's not that I won't tell them, but I want them to sow the seeds first. I want them to learn about the plant and watch the whole process because I'm very worried that, and I, I this happens all the time where people say, oh, I collected these seeds. Now what do I do with them? And it turned out it was seeds that, you know, they needed to be kept moist and sown immediately or they had taken those seeds and left them in their hot car and cooked them. You know, the, and if lots of people are out there ripping the seeds off the plants, you know, that's not good either. So it's, the whole seed piece takes some thoughtful handling. And so for me, because I had so much experience with this, starting at the Arnold and then when I was at Garden in the Woods, it was so easy for me to develop our seed program. You know, the beauty of seeds, they take up no space. You know, I have millions of seeds in my two refrigerators here. But right now, I have a several, they're called founders plots. When you take the seeds, germinate them, and then you plant out a population that you can then do more seeds of. We're actually looking for, we're looking to partner with another landowner like a um, land trust. We have a couple that we're working on right now to set up a site where we can do more of that. Um, because the interest in our seeds just keeps growing. 
you know, I still have my old Newcomb's Field Guide from when I was in college. And when I flip through that book and it, you know, talks about the different plants, it, it's just really depressing to see how many species that were considered abundant and common back in 1980, that now when I see them, you know, it's one plant here, three plants there, you know, it, we, especially in the Northeast, we don't have these massive populations anymore. So, which is again, why I want lots of people learning to sow the seed and make plants. When you sow the seeds using the methods that I outline in pots, you can have most of the seed will germinate and grow and then you can plant those out. So you can get a lot of plants versus if you took that same 100 seed, you know, you take 100 seeds, sow them in a pot, you might get 100 plants. You sow them out in the ground, you're, you might get one plant. So the perfect scenario is you sow the seeds outdoors in late fall. Like I like to get people to do it even New Year's to me is a perfect time to do a nice antidote to the holiday. Put the pots outside, you have to cover them with wire. And it's really interesting to see when they germinate in the spring because each species is different. Some germinate in late March when it's still going below freezing regularly at night. And other species will really wait till the heat most of them till the heat of summer, you know, but with the bulk of them in April. And so the kind of weather that, you know, here in New England that farmers hate the cold, raw, miserable, rainy April is like perfect germination weather for the native seeds. And then I like people to grow those seedlings on and you don't even have to divide them up. You can just take that little pot of seedling and put it in a much bigger pot and just keep it in your little nursery area for the summer and then divide them up and plant them out in the fall in the landscape. And if lots of people did this, think how many plants we can get out in our landscape quickly. As you look back over these last seven years and you look back to this last year of 2020 and the pandemic and this real highlighting of the essential need for and value of our gardens, our green spaces, our wild places, and, you know, this idea of a social justice reset in our world. Have these two urgencies that have come up, which have always been there, but they have really come up in a specific way this last year. Have they changed your mission or deepened your mission in any particular way, Heather? Well, one area that I have, you know, because I know our indigenous plants so well, I have always wanted to somehow forge a better connection with the main indigenous people. Um, and then I also think, you know, Portland has, Portland, Maine has quite a big immigrant population now. And of course, they're in the parts of town where the least amount of trees and wanting to get more native trees planted in the city. Um, so those are two areas that I'd really like to see more shift happen, helping to reach out to those two areas, you know, as far as the climate change and the pandemic and the loss of biodiversity, you know, I have mixed feeling because I was learning about all this stuff back when I was in college. I've been expecting this to happen 
for 40 years. And just, it's been, a, I've just been amazed how long it's taken and all the lost time for it to reach the public awareness. But people are aware now and that's great. And they want to make a difference. And, I, and seeds are also a lot cheaper than buying plants. It's very affordable. That's another thing I don't push enough is, you know, it's expensive to go buy a lot of plants and we need to be planting a lot of plants, a lot. So how to, how to reach more different kinds of people I guess I'm interested in, and how to hold the attention. You know, our seed sales have doubled in this past year. People have been crazed. Part of it, I think, is desperation, but I hope it won't just be a passing phase that people will get the bug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it's fun. You know, there's nothing cuter than a little seedling. (laughs) And um, just like, you know, that's what we all love about gardeners is they like they get the bug to be interested in plants and soil and i'd like to see people get the patience of growing from seed and enjoying the process it's like when your child is born you're not in a rush to see them you know be a teenager (laughs) or a grown-up you know you we need to enjoy that process we need to plant an acorn and enjoy the process of watching that acorn become a tree and to not just think, no, I'm not going to plant it because it won't be big in my lifetime. I mean, we got to get beyond that and be more proactive for the future and, and show those of us who are grown-ups show that to the youth that we have faith in the future, you know, and we're planting the seed of this tree that their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will hopefully enjoy the shade of underneath. And they're gonna need that shade because it's gonna be a lot hotter. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you and hear your, your knowledge and your passion and your experiences, Heather. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it too. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Jennifer. Heather McCargo is the founder of the Wild Seed Project in Portland, Maine, focused on the relationship between seed-grown native plants and reweaving healthy ecosystems for all living creatures. The Wild Seed Project envisions a landscape where people help repopulate the landscape to be abundant with native plants, primarily grown from seed, so that we can support wildlife, biodiversity, and buffer the effects of climate change for us all. The Wild Seed Project invites gardeners around the country, the world in fact, to take their rewilding pledge, committing to working towards including a minimum of 70% seed-grown plants native to your region into your garden. It's a pledge worth taking. Join us again next week when we explore even more deeply the concept of biodiversity and our relationship to it in conversation with Indigenous seed keeper, thinker, and advocate Rowan White, joined by Gavin Van Horn, the Executive Director and Creative Director of the Center for Humans and Nature based in Chicago. 
Gavin is the co-editor and Rowan a contributor to a newly published five-volume series of books entitled Kinship, Belonging in a World of Relations. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society and the American Horticultural Society. To read more and see many images from this week's conversation with Heather McCargo and the Wild Seed Project and their rewilding work to support biodiversity in our world, make sure to check out this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. A co-production of North State Public Radio, we are also deeply grateful for the online and IT help of Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.